when the children of Israel had disobeyed God during the time of Jeremiah the prophet, he prophesied that they were going to go into captivity. For 70 years, the king of Babylon was going to come, conquer the land, and exactly that happened, right? Uh, about a million Israelites went into captivity. Uh, Peter writes, 1 Peter 5, he said, She, the church, who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, the Bible tells us that Peter was the apostle to the Jews. But you find him in Babylon. Now, the reason he went to Babylon was because most of the Jews never left Babylon. In fact, when King Cyprus, it's found in 2 Chronicles, it says, Now in the first year of Cyprus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyprus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyprus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Now that's interesting. Here's a pagan king. How many of you know God can use anybody? And he says, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. He says, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, rebuild your houses, rebuild the nation, rebuild the culture. And Cyprus literally gives them a command to go back. Right? Now, there's a million Jews who were taken into captivity. Seventy years later, it is estimated that there are two to three million Jews. Right? 42,360 went back. About 80 years later, 5,000 went back. And then there was another smaller group that went back after that. Maybe, maybe 5% went back. Now, the king commanded them, but they didn't go. And here's why they didn't go. They were comfortable. Right? It was a long journey to get back. Can you imagine walking? Most of the people were walking. Some, of course, had a horse or a, or a mule or would have been on a cart. But the journey was almost a 1,000 miles. That's a long way to walk. That's a long way to drive. All right? And when they get there, it was going to be nothing but hard work, hard work, hard work, enemies around them. Right? They were going to be leaving a very, very comfortable position place that they had for everybody it was going to greatly decrease their standard of living and when they get there there's nothing there's nothing waiting for them they've got to start from scratch I thought it was interesting that it says in Hebrews chapter 11 by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place to the to, excuse me to the place that he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going now he's an Ur of the Chaldees uh, at the time of Abraham, Ur of the Chaldees was the most modern city on planet Earth. They had uh, an underground septic system. Uh, it was very, very modern for its time. And God tells him, I want you to go out, live in a tent. Right? 
go live in a tent wherever I happen to show you. And by faith, he dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So he, he stepped out of the easy life to obey God. And that is usually the way that it is. Right? Now, Zig Ziglar tells a story about fleas. How many have heard his flea story? All right, few of you. Here, here's basically what it amounts to. He says, you take fleas and you put them inside of an aquarium with a top on it. Right? And he says, and those fleas, they just start jumping. They keep hitting the top. He says, you let them jump for about 20 minutes. He says, and then you take the top off and not one flea will escape because they found out where the lid is and they just stay there. They aren't going, they aren't going to hit their head. And, and I really believe that when it comes to the kingdom of God, a lot of us are like those fleas, right? We, we, we've tried some stuff, we hit our head and, and literally we don't keep going. In, in fact, the Bible actually tells us that God has turned us loose into the kingdom of the son of his love. In other words, he's saying there is so much out there. He said, there is more out there than you could ever find, than you could ever get a hold of. There's more truth. There's more authority. There's more blessing that out there for you. But yet we get in a spot and we just stay there. God's got more freedom, more liberty, more destiny, more purpose for every single one of us. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I want to talk to you tonight about that phrase, one phrase in that verse. It says, if anyone is in Christ. And I want to talk to you about being in Christ. Now, I have right here a translator's New Testament. Now, if, if you don't know Greek and you went someplace in South America and you went and lived with an indigenous people group and they didn't have a language and you wrote down the, the, the language, you put the first dictionary together and you were going to give them the Bible, the New Testament. This is one of the tools that they would give you. This is a special New Testament with notes for translators, right? This is what it says. It says this phrase, in Christ, in him, in whom, in the beloved, is found more than 160 times in Pauline's writings. In Christ represents a new life principle, and the phrase can be regarded as a technical term in Pauline theology. Christ crucified, raised from the dead, is thought of as a sphere, an atmosphere, in which by the power of the Holy Spirit, believers think and act. Thus the phrase describes the life of the Christian in intimate fellowship with Christ through faith. Being in Christ is an experience which unites Christians both with Christ and with one another. And in many such contexts, it brings out the element of union with one another as Christians. The formula in Christ is rich and comprehensive. And probably for this reason, most translators have refrained 
get this, most translators have refrained from the risk of under-translation. Okay. Now, now they're concerned that you might under-translate two words, in Christ, in Christ. Now, that was a lot of, of, of theological talk there. Here's what it means. God created Adam and Eve, and he put in Adam everything that he wanted every person to be. But when Adam fell, Adam reproduced in the condition he fell to, not the condition that he was created in. So God said, I need another Adam. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that God sent another Adam. He is called the last Adam. He's called the Lord from heaven, and it's Jesus. And now the first Adam, everything that he did got us in trouble. But the last Adam, Jesus, everything he did was to get us out of trouble. Right? That's why the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 19, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Right? So when Jesus is at the cross, God is working in Christ. But he is not working on Christ. How many of you know Jesus didn't need any help? He wasn't working on Christ. He was working in Christ. Now, he was working in Christ on you. The first Adam got you in trouble. But God did a whole bunch of stuff in the last Adam, Jesus, to get you out of trouble. Right? So it says here, if anyone is in Christ. You see, when God looks at the world, God only sees two groups of people. In Christ, in Adam. You're in the first Adam or you're in the last Adam. And what the first Adam did got you in trouble, but what the second Adam did got you out of trouble. Where sin abound, grace did much more abound. In other words, what God did in Christ was greater than what Satan did through the devil. Now, if you don't know it, I'm just going to tell you right now, that is good news for you and me. All right. So, for example... Let me just give you a scripture here. This is found in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. And, and, and I'm not mad at anybody. Don't think I'm mad. I'm just using this to show you this principle. All right? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So he lists all these different things and he says, such were some of you. You see, you did what people say that you did, but you need to understand this. You are no longer who they think you are because you are a new creature in Christ. Right? You're new in Christ. Now, what we want to do is, is we want our faith to become effectual. We want it to make a difference in our lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the gospel did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. So the gospel to profit, to bless, to make a difference in our life, it needs to be mixed with faith. Now, Philemon verse Six. There's only one chapter, verse 6. It says that the communication 
of your faith may become effectual or may be energized. How many would like your faith energized? Kind of like turbocharge that stuff. All right. Here's how it happens. Listen, by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. By the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ. In Christ. It's talking about that phrase there that's used 160 times in the New Testament telling us what God did for us in Christ. So when I said this morning that God needs to introduce you to yourself, I'm not kidding. Because there are no less than 160 things that God did at the cross working in Christ on you. Think about that. There's at least 160 things. Now, we'd like to preach on this once a year. I was thinking we ought to preach on this every week except once a year. All right? Because there is just so much that has been done for us. Now, Colossians 1, verse 13. Right? There's so many different translations. I've written a few of them down here. It says, it was he who rescued us from the grip of the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom, that's one of them phrases, in whom we have redemption through the, through the forgiveness of sins. Now, what did he do? Well, there's two things right here that are mentioned. It says that he translated us out of the grip of the power of darkness, put us into the kingdom of the son of his love, and we have forgiveness of sins. Wade translation. For it was he who rescued us out of darkness, established us as citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son. The Bible says your citizenship, it is in heaven. Here's my favorite translation. It says, for he has rescued us out of the darkness and gloom of Satan's kingdom and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. Listen, you've been rescued out of Satan's kingdom, out of its darkness and gloom, out of its control. I like to say it this way. The best day you ever had with the devil is not as good as the worst day you ever have in the kingdom. You've been translated out from under Satan's authority, out from under his gloom and doom. Jordan's translation, which by the way is called the cotton patch translation, a little bit of a southern flair there. It says, it was the father who sprang us from the jailhouse of darkness and turned us loose into the new world of his beloved son. All right. So he took you out of the jailhouse of darkness that you under Satan's domain and he turned you loose inside the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the son of his love. And again, the kingdom of God there is so much there. You know, it's like if you go, to, how many have ever been to an ocean? I mean, the, the Lake Michigan would probably work, but let's just go to an ocean, right? I mean, you, you walk in, all right, and, and it, there is so much there, right? You, you could never get to the other side. You go to the, the middle, you could never hit the bottom, all right? There is just so much there. That's what the kingdom of God is like. 
And God has just taken you and he has turned you loose inside the kingdom of the son of his love. And he says, there is so much stuff here that I've got for you. He said, you can't even get to it all. There's so much. We said, who delivered us out of the tyrannical rule of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. I like to think about this like Star Trek. How many truckies we had? I remember Kirk's down on the planet. You know, he goes, beam me up, Scotty. Boom, beams him up. That's what God did to you. He beamed you out of the domain of darkness and he translated, translated you into the kingdom of the son of his love. Basic translation says, who's made us free from the power of evil and given us a place in the kingdom of the son of his love. Second scripture for tonight. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And I want to camp here. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. What Christianity is supposed to be we are supposed to be the forgiving community of forgiven sinners. The forgiving community of forgiven sinners. You know, there, there is no such thing as a sin so big, so powerful, that the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. No such thing. The devil tells people you did too much, you went too far. It's a lie. But we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now that word redemption, it literally means to be bought back. We were bought back from the condition that sin put us in and our sin was forgiven and we were taken out of that place and put into the kingdom of the son of his love. And I think most Christians understand that part, that there is forgiveness. But here's what I think most of us miss, right? that just as much as we are to receive forgiveness, we are to give forgiveness. Right? Pastor Jake was up here on, on Wednesday, and he drew a little diagram up here. And what, what he had was he had a person on each side and God up on top. Right? And he talked about how everybody gets forgiveness. But here's really what, what I saw when he did that. God forgives, but if we don't forgive, we are putting ourselves above God. If we don't forgive, we're putting ourselves above God. So Jesus said this. He said, every time that you pray, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. Every time you pray, anything, all-inclusive, doesn't matter what it was. Anyone, doesn't matter. And of course, the people that are the closest to you are the ones who are capable of hurting you the most, the ones that you've opened your heart to. He said, whenever you pray, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. Now, think about this. Jesus believes that in five minutes, you can forgive anybody of anything. 
He said, while you pray, when you pray, forgive. I've talked with people who tell me things happened 20 years ago and they haven't forgiven. And they think they can't forgive mostly because they believe that forgiveness is an emotion. But forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is a decision. The Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not give place to the devil. Most of us don't realize that a lack of forgiveness literally opens the door for the devil. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable about a man who literally owns, owes billions of dollars. And he goes to the king and he, he begs for forgiveness and he's forgiven. And then he goes out and he finds a, a fellow servant who owes him like 50 bucks. And he grabs him and says, pay me. And the guy goes, I, 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 give me chance, give me time, give me time. And he says, no, and has him thrown into a debtor's prison. And when the king finds out, he calls him in and he said, I forgave you that great debt. Shouldn't you have forgiven your fellow servant? And it's a picture of the great forgiveness we've received from God and how we need to keep forgiving others. In fact, Jesus said, if you do not forgive, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. He said in that parable, that story, Jesus said, so will my father do to every one of you. See, they were turned over to the tormentors when they couldn't pay. And Jesus said, that's what my father will do to you. You'll be turned over to the tormentors. Now, God's not going to say devil's sick him, but what happens is this. When we don't forgive, we open the door. The Bible says, don't give Satan a foothold. Don't give him a place, some translations say. When King Saul refused to forgive David, that David hadn't even done anything wrong. It was just in his mind. 1 Samuel 18, it says he eyed David from that day forward. And the Bible says the next day, an evil spirit came. He gave place to the devil. He gave place to the devil. Charles Roberts IV, 32 years old, drove a dairy truck for a living lived in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It was in October. It was October the 2nd. It was a beautiful fall day. No. But in his mind, things were, were very, very different. It wasn't beautiful in his mind. He was married to a wonderful woman named Amy. They had three young children, and life should have been good. But nine years earlier, their first child was born, a little girl. And she had lived only 20 minutes and had died. And Charles Roberts blamed God. And he got mad at God. And then he got bitter against God. And that bitterness, it just kept on growing and kept on growing. The Bible says it this way. See that no one falls away from God's grace. That no bitterness spring up to cause trouble and spoil everybody's life. You know, that root of bitterness, it grows, and eventually it springs up. So that anger, it turned into rage. And there was a, another complicating factor. When he was 12, he had molested sexually two of his young relatives. Nobody knew. The, the, the relatives were so young, they didn't even remember. The only reason we know is because he wrote it down. But he was filled with two deadly poisons. Rage from unforgiveness and shame and what he had done. 
he decided to seek revenge against God by killing some innocent girls. And this is what he wrote in his suicide note. He said, I am, so, I am filled with so much hate towards myself and towards God in this unimaginable emptiness on the inside. I'm angry with God and I need to punish some Christian girls so I can get even with him. So on that beautiful October day, October the 2nd, 2006, he took his guns, his rage, and his shame, and he went to a one-room Amish schoolhouse in the hamlet of Nickel Mines, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. In that room, he walked in with a 9mm pistol, a 12-gauge shotgun, a 30 6 rifle, a stun gun, two knives, 800, excuse me, 600 rounds of ammunition. There were 25 students and a teacher. He released the 15 boys and the teacher, but he kept the 10 girls. He barricaded the door, tied all 10 girls up. And this is what he said. He said, I'm going to make you pay. God killed my daughter, but you will pay. The girls were between ages of 6 and 13. He shot all 10 of them in the head. Five died, five survived. When the police arrived, he turned the gun on himself. His wife, Amy, was at a mother's in touch meeting at the local Presbyterian church. She had no idea what was going on. The evil acts that he committed just was such a tragedy, it just went through the entire Amish community, the slaughter of their innocent children. And in most cases, that would be the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story here. Within a few hours, a group of men from the Amish community went to Amy's house and knocked on her door. They told Amy, they says, we've already forgiven your husband, and we want you to know we have no ill will towards you. It says, we know that you're suffering and that your children are suffering and that you have a great loss. And we want you to know that we're going to help you. We're going to be your friend. We're going to be your neighbor. And we're going to help you recover. And that's exactly what they did. The, the state trooper <clears throat> that saw this literally just broke down, just wept. Do you know what Jesus said to us? He said, I have given to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God. You know what one of those keys is? It's forgiveness. It's receiving forgiveness, but it's also giving forgiveness. In Romans chapter 12, it says, do not pay back evil for evil. How many know when somebody slaps you, you want to slap them twice? That's your flesh. The Bible says don't pay back evil for evil. It says as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Don't take revenge. But leave it to the divine wrath. For the scripture says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now listen, here's what what happens. There's different things that can happen. That person that did you wrong, they may go to God and they may repent. And just like God has forgiven you, he will forgive them. If not, at some point, God may step in and take vengeance. 
But if he doesn't, listen, listen carefully. God will make every wrong right on judgment day. He will make every wrong right on judgment day. All right? So there could be forgiveness, but if not, they may reap it while they're here. But listen, everybody's going to reap what they sowed. And it may be on judgment day. It may be tomorrow. But what we do is we forgive. He says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You know, if, if you don't forgive, all that happens is that cycle of vengeance, it just stays in motion. But once you forgive, it stops. Instantly, it stops. You know, but that's what the kingdom of God's about. It's righteousness, it's peace, it's joy in the Holy Ghost. It's receiving forgiveness, and it's giving forgiveness. Now, I'm going to ask everybody to stand a moment. All right? Except me, I'm going to sit. All right? And there, I believe that there's some here, some of us, that we have not forgiven. And we need to forgive. Now, I mentioned forgiveness. It's a decision, and it is. But there's more than just an act of your will to forgive. Right? Faith without works is it's dead. It's dead. See, in, on top of that act of our will, we need to pray for the person. Right? And, and I really, I, I know that this is true that what happens when we don't forgive over a period of time, we give Satan a foothold in our life. And that foothold needs to be broken. So what I'm going to ask tonight is if you have some unforgiveness in your heart, I'm going to ask you to come forward. And we're going to walk through three simple steps to forgive, to pray for that person, and to break the, the authority of the enemy who has tried to invade because the Paul, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he says if you don't forgive you give place to Satan and that place needs to be broken that person needs to be set free all right so you may be here you know you've got unforgiveness maybe somebody stole money from you you haven't forgiven them somebody stole your virginity someone molested you someone gossiped you know, if you know that you need to come forward, would you please just, just slip out, just, just start coming down. Just start to come down. You say, there's people I haven't forgiven, and I need to forgive. I want you to just slip out of your seat. Come down. Maybe somebody broke a confidence. There was a, a spouse, an ex-spouse, who was unfaithful. Somebody lied in a custody battle. And you're living with the results of it every single day. You may have been betrayed by a friend. You may have been cheated in business. And that, that, that thing, it, it just keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. You need to forgive. You need to forgive. Your parents were divorced. And you just haven't forgiven them. You haven't forgiven them and you need to forgive. But you just come on. Come on down. All right. 
Now, first of all, if you've come down, I'm going to ask you to just lift your hands. And just repeat this prayer. Just say, Heavenly Father, I thank you for forgiveness. That you've forgiven all my sins. And I ask you, Lord, forgive me for holding unforgiveness in my heart. And right now, I forgive. And you just, you just mention that person's name. Right now, you say, I forgive them. I release them. I demand no payment, no recompense, no vengeance. I forgive in Jesus' name. As you've forgiven me, I forgive them. And right now, whoever it is, I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray that God bless them. Now, you're going to do that right now, but this isn't something you just do today. Anytime that you have a feeling on the inside that, that, that's against that person, you pray for them again. It may take three weeks. It might take three months. It could take three years. But every time you forgive, and this is what will happen, God will enlarge your heart. The day will come when God will enlarge your heart. And you'll think about that person. And you'll have compassion. God may show you the reason that they were hurt, why they did what they did. But you just keep praying for that person. Week after week, month after month, until the feeling's gone. If it comes back, pray again. Pray again. And Lord, we thank you for freedom. And we come against any work of the enemy that has tried to attach itself to their life because they gave Satan a foothold. We declare right now in the spirit realm that that foothold is closed in Jesus' name. And freedom is theirs in Jesus' name. Freedom in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for freedom in Jesus' name. 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 Freedom. Freedom in Jesus' name. Freedom in Jesus' name. Freedom in Jesus' name. Freedom. Freedom. 